to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Fight less, feel appreciated, and have a deeper connection with your spouse. And now your hosts, Shachar Erez and Ziv Raviv. Hello and welcome to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Hi, I'm Ziv Raviv. And I'm Shachar Erez. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Michael Kasselman, originally from New York, currently from San Francisco, a journalist that covers topics like sex research and sex therapy and sexuality for over 50 years and have been have released a, a book that was three years of work uh, just recently called Sizzling Sex for Life with over 2,500 studies that were covered in that book. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. Great to have you with us. I'm happy uh, to be here. Great. You know, uh, Ziv just mentioned uh, your book, and I want to start with uh, sharing how impressed I am from your book. I'm so glad to have read it. It's so uh, readable and engaging and also comprehensive and friendly and uh, all research-based, 2,500 researchers there. Wow, amazing. And it's not dry at all. It's sexy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So I want to ask, uh, sizzling sex for life, is it really possible first? Mm. Yes, yes. Sizzling, it, it, you know, the myth is that uh, children are not sexual, that people become sexual in their late teens, and they're sexual until some random age, 50, 60, 70, whatever, at which point they stop being sexual. And so the uh, myth is that sexuality is this time-limited uh, enterprise somehow in the middle of life. Actually, you can have sizzling sex for life. Children have a sex life. They explore their own bodies and they, they learn how to uh, provide pleasure to themselves. Self-pleasuring is a key element of, of childhood. As people become more sexual as teens and young adults, they enter into more adult sexuality. Later in life, they are, you know, if they have kids, their parents, they're still having sex, even though their kids can't believe that their parents are doing it. And then the myth is that, uh, you know, when you get old, sex ends. And that's absolutely not true. What does end, sex changes later in life. I'm 71 myself, and sex does change. Uh, there's less urgency, and men develop erection issues, and women develop uh, vaginal dryness and atrophy uh, that can make intercourse uncomfortable, and men can't accomplish intercourse anyway. So older couples, some think, oh, well, we can't have intercourse, so we're going to stop having sex. But it's quite possible to uh, maintain a rich and full and sizzling sex life at any age, at any age uh, up until you die, if you're creative. I mean, um, uh, sex, people think sex is all about intercourse. Actually, sex is about loving touch that eventually extends to the genitals. And you know, as you get older, your eyesight fails, your hearing fails, your, your senses, your sense of smell gets, uh, uh, diminishes. But actually, touch is the one sense that becomes more sensitive as you get older. People become more sensitive to touch, and they become more uh, sensitive to loving touch as well and enjoy it more. And that's why sex therapists advise older couples to transition from sex based on intercourse 
to what sex therapists call outer course, which is everything but. It's kissing, hugging, cuddling, uh, mutual massage, oral sex, toys, maybe some uh, BDSM or kink or whatever, spanking, blindfolds, whatever floats your boat. And, and if you have that perspective, you can maintain sizzling sex until the day you die. Beautiful. I love how you said that sex is not just about intercourse, and that's not just for old age, right? Can you say something right. about that? Absolutely. The, um, one of the, as far as men are concerned, you know, men, men often think sex is about intercourse, and they can't wait to stick it in somewhere. And then they complain that they come too soon or they don't come at all. And uh, what men don't understand is that ejaculation issues – often are the result of rushed and hurried plunging into intercourse without any warm-up time. Men often resent the fact that women say, oh, I need warm-up time. And the guy is saying, why? Let's just fuck. Actually, what men need to understand is that warming up is good for them. Their penises are going to behave a lot better if they spend 20 minutes or so in kissing, hugging, and mutual whole-body massage from head to foot. You want to control your ejaculations, but you want to come when you want to come. You want to beat premature ejaculation, and you want to, a lot of men have trouble coming. The way to have your penis behave the way you want to is to adopt a massage-based perspective, a massage-based approach to making love. And uh, in Sizzling Sex for Life, I have a whole chapter on, on massage, and uh, it's how critical it is. It's one of the 10 ingredients of sizzling sex. So um, that's one thing that's a hard lesson for men to learn, is that sex is not about intercourse, it's about massage. And frankly, I had trouble learning that lesson myself. In my own, in my 20s, I was, you know, a typical guy, horny guy, just trying to get laid. And I had premature ejaculation. I could not control my timing. And uh, accidentally, I started writing about sex and reading the uh, sexual uh, science at the time. And it became very clear that if I like transition to a more massage-based approach to lovemaking, it would help cure my premature ejaculation. And it did. And I was so amazed. I, I kept thinking, oh my God, I can't be the only one to have this problem. Men should know about this. And I've been writing about sex and sexuality and, and focusing on men's sexuality ever since. Wow. That's amazing. So I want to ask about those 10 principles. Do you have uh, priorities uh, around them, like the keys for sizzling sex? Can you share with us more about that? Yeah, the uh, first part of sizzling sex is called the 10 ingredients of sizzling sex. And they include pleasure and uh, consent and coaching and uh, uh, massage and oral sex and uh, novelty and fantasy. And they all work together. They all work together to create a context that allows couples to enjoy one another's company. And, and in the, of the 10, uh, they're all important. But uh, the ones that men have uh, a lot of trouble with are, as I mentioned, massage and also coaching. Men don't like to be told what to do. Right. And nobody does. And typically in sex circles, it's all called communication. You have to communicate. Well, I don't know. When my wife says, Mike, we have to talk. I know I've done something wrong. 
I know I'm in trouble. Oh, God. <laughs> so when when she says we have to talk, we need to communicate, I think, oh, no. I, oh, God. what What's this going to be? In my book, I don't use the term communication at all. I use the term coaching. Coaching is what sex is all about. And men, men know what coaching is. Coaching is friendly suggestions to help you be better. And so coaching is much less threatening to men than communication is. And so my chapter on what most people would call communication is really all about coaching, how to ask for what you want and how to make sure you get it. And if you, and it's not, the other thing about communication is that people think you're going to like make speeches and and it's like orations and, and proclamations. Actually, sexual coaching can be done with very few words. It's not hard. And I urge men to invite coaching, to say to women, whenever you uh, make a move on a woman, the first thing you do is say, is this okay? And invite her to say yes or no. And if it's not okay, you say, "How how can this work for you? My goal, honey, is your pleasure. So tell me if you're having pleasure or not. I want you to have pleasure. And then if you're the recipient, if somebody else is taking the initiative, and uh, many women do take initiative in lovemaking, and that's a good thing, then you want to say, hey, hold on a second. I, there's something I need to tell you. And it can be handled in a friendly manner uh, with a lot of humor and laughter. And then sex is not this sort of long march towards some, you know, elusive goal, then it becomes what sex actually is, which is adult play. It's play. And the whole idea is to have fun. And yes, every now and then people have a goal like getting pregnant. But in over a lifetime, the number of times you're having sex to actually get pregnant represents less than 1% of the typical person's sex life. So for more than 99% of the time, lovers are just having fun and playing with each other. And if they want to play better, I suggest that they read the first 10 chapters of Sizzling Sex for Life. Yeah, it's an amazing uh, part of the book. I agree. So coaching, coaching is, a, is, a, is a, an important key. Uh, but what about sit, like uh, a lot of couples struggle with just initiating a conversation from the get-go, yes. not a lo- you know, let alone uh, within, uh, in the middle of, of an actual uh, lovemaking. So w- what, what can people do to overcome that? Well, uh, first of all, I need to say that um, for a lot of couples... They can handle their own sexual situation if they have the right information. And that's what my book is there to do, to provide the information that allows people to interpret it for themselves, figure out what they want to do, and proceed. Now, there are other couples who have more problems. Maybe they have... A, a regrettable past a history of sexual trauma, for example, which, you know, 15% of women and about 2% of men have. Maybe they have emotional issues. Maybe they have, maybe they fight a lot. Maybe they don't really get along that well, you know. And so for those folks, then I think that sex therapy or couples therapy is very helpful and necessary. And I encourage it. I don't think that any book answers everybody's questions all the time. But For people who don't have real um, emotional issues or a lot of baggage that they're carrying into their uh, relationship and their lovemaking, then information 
is very helpful. And there have been studies of this that show that um, self-help resources provide significant benefit for two-thirds of people who use them for sexual issues. So two-thirds of people get a lot of help from self-help resources like my book. For the one-third who don't get a sufficient benefit, therapy or counseling helps two-thirds of them. And so the combination of the book and counseling can help two-thirds of the people who don't get help from self-help alone. And then that leaves about 10% of people who read the books, have therapy, and still have issues. And for them, it's usually uh, medical problems or uh, psychological mental illness kind of things or uh, drug issues that um, require more intensive therapy. But the great thing about writing about sex and sex therapy is that most people get a lot better pretty quickly. It's not, sex is not as mysterious as a lot of people seem, think it is. Most people with a little bit of help, a little bit of counseling, they get better pretty quickly. I mean, the typical sex therapist sees couples for, you know, four months, six months, and it's over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, we totally agree. That's why we have this podcast. You know, I'm a, I'm a couples therapist and I noticed that so much of what I do in therapy is actually psychoeducation. Right. That right. can be done in, 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 in various ways, in this podcast, in your book, in other ways as well. Yes, the, um, the way therapists are using my book, and, and I'm very happy about this, is that people come in with their problem. And a typical couple comes in with sexual misconceptions, Mm-hmm. And then issues between them. Mm-hmm. And therapists can say, all right, here, read this book, read this chapter, and it's going to correct your sexual misconceptions mm-hmm. right off the bat. And then come to me, the therapist, and we'll talk about you guys and how you can use this new knowledge to uh, enhance your marriage, uh, your relationship, and your lovemaking. So it really, it's, it's really sad to me that so much sexual misery is just a result of mistaken information, like men who think that it's all about sticking your dick in somewhere. And uh, don't understand that actually lovemaking is a broader than that and involves more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. So, so 50 years of writing, how many, answer, how many questions have you answered? Do you have an estimation? <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention because um, I've been answering sex questions this whole time. And um, I calculated it's, it's more than 12,000 questions. And I have, a, I have a website called greatsexguidance.com that I've run for 10 years where I, I answer questions for free. And any of your uh, podcast uh, listeners can go to greatsexguidance.com, ask me a question for free, and I'll answer it. And, you know, I get I have thousands of questions. And it's many, many people have questions about sex. And it's amazing that, you know, I mean, porn is one of the biggest destinations for men on the internet. You, uh, sex issues are all over the internet. There's zillions of books written about sex, and 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 yet everybody still has questions. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Uh, it's it's uh, and so that was why I wanted to write SizzlingSexForLife.com because with a view toward being comprehensive from cradle to grave to talk about 
all the typical issues that people encounter uh, throughout life. Because so many sex books are very narrow. You know, sex, how to talk to your kids about sex, how it's sex for teenagers, sex for parents, sex while you're pregnant. I mean, and they're all valuable. All those books are valuable. I have nothing against them. But I wanted to create one resource that would kind of take people from the cradle to the grave and be entirely based on what we now have of 70 years of sex research. The, the sex research field is about 70 years old. And I went back to day one and uh, Kinsey and Masters and Johnson and uh, all of them to try and uh, they're all included in Sizzling Sex for Life. In your perspective, what's like if you had to choose one thing that uh, men had to learn and one thing that women had to learn? Well, um, I have in the introduction of Sizzling Sex for Life, I have two wishes, one wish for men and one for women. And my wish for men is that they would kiss women's lips both sets every time. Men are familiar with kissing the upper lips and uh, men should cultivate uh, skill in kissing the upper lips because a lot of women judge men by, is he a good kisser? And then a lot of men make the mistake of thinking that sex is all about intercourse and they do not provide oral sex to women. They want to get blown and sucked themselves. They can't wait for women to drop to their knees and suck their dicks, but they do not return the favor. And what men don't understand is that very few women have orgasms solely from intercourse. Some do, some of the time, but most don't, most of the time. And the way most women come is from direct caressing of the clitoris, which is between the legs above the vagina. And the way most women say they would rather come is with the guy's tongue on there. So I tell men, kiss the lips both sets every time. Uh, that's my wish for men. My wish yeah. for women... Mm -hmm. is that they would lighten up about men watching porn. Now, pornography is controversial, and people have all kinds of different opinions about it. But certain things about it are undeniable. One is that it's one of the top destinations for men around the world on the Internet. So if you're a guy with an Internet connection, it is virtually certain that you have seen porn, do see porn, and will in the future. And men like porn because men self-pleasure, men masturbate for stress relief, uh, much more than women do. Women are more likely to do things like talk to their friends and take a hot bath and go for a walk. And men do all those things too. But men often de-stress by watching porn and stroking. And there is nothing like orgasm to calm a man down. So men go to porn to de-stress and also to exercise their fantasies. And men love looking at naked women. Men love looking at sex. A lot of women are tremendously threatened by this. And the best research on it is that 25% of women think porn is absolutely poison, the spawn of the devil, uh, a total abomination. If the guy watches porn, he can't love me. I can't be in a relationship with him, on and on and on. 75% of women don't feel that way, but it's not like they love porn. They just kind of don't think about it that much. And I... Throughout Sizzling Sex for Life, I, I point out that overwhelmingly men 
It's benign. Porn doesn't really hurt anybody. Men have every right to masturbate, whether they're single or coupled, and everybody has the right to masturbate, and everybody does before they're in, get into partner sex, and they like it. And why give up, you know, apple pie once you've tasted blueberry? Why stop going to the beach once you've been to the mountains? I mean, having being in a couple relationship doesn't cancel out masturbation. And if it doesn't, it's fine to use porn. Now, when I say this, men almost always nod their heads and say, yes, that's true. I, that, that's right. And a lot of women sort of go, well, I don't know. Ugh. But I have my opinion, and that's my opinion. I think women should lighten up about men watching porn, and I wish they would. And some do, and some don't. And, and I, you know, I get incredible hate mail from some women. You, you know, you're a lousy person. You're, you're the devil incarnate because you, uh, you're in the pay of pornographers. All these accusations. No, I'm just a guy who is like every other man who views porn recreationally, and that's what men do. And you know what? 99.9% .9 of the time, it's fine. Now, if a guy is doing nothing in his life but watching porn, then that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. Just like if he's doing nothing in his life but playing golf. Mm -hmm. But most men, the um, you know, one of the largest web porn sites in the world is called Pornhub. It's the number two website on earth. It gets more than three billion views a year. Wow. So it's huge. And the typical guy on there, okay, for, first of all, 75% uh, of the audience is men and 25% is women. Women don't understand that a lot of women watch porn, but men watch it much more than women by a, a ratio of about three to one. And you know how long the average guy stays on a porn site? Five to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So porn is not some kind of, you know, abomination from the devil. For most men, it's a coffee break. It's a little a little time out uh, from their daily stresses and then they return to their lives. So that's my wish for women. Lighten up about porn. Beautiful. And you've been covering a lot of uh, studies um Throughout your career, you've been very research-oriented, and specifically with Sizzling Sex for Life. Uh, can you share with us maybe something, uh, maybe there's more than one, that really surprised you when you prepared all this research and studied it towards writing uh, uh, Sizzling Sex for Life? Well, uh, you know, sex is infinitely surprising. So there's, and that's why I keep writing about it, because there's always interesting new things coming up. But one thing that um, a lot of men really focus on is penis size. And they are convinced that theirs is too small, and they want to make it bigger. And if you're a guy who watches porn, you've probably seen 10,000 ads for expensive products, pills that are going to, they're going to sell you to make your dick bigger. Well, First of all, let me tell you and all of your podcast folks, never ever buy a product that claims to enlarge the penis. They are all cynical frauds and the people who market them, in my opinion, should be in prison. On the other hand, you know, an extra inch wouldn't hurt, right? And in my book, there are safe, effective ways to be all you can be, hmm. uh, to be, to have the largest penis you can have naturally, safely, and you know what? For free. You know, the, the focus on penis size is really a function of porn because um, 
you know, porn is all about men's sexual fantasies and men's sexual fantasies involve getting a firm erection and sticking it in somewhere. And so when you start taking photographs of this, you focus a lot on the penis. But in for most of human history, the, uh, the penis size was like irrelevant. It was mostly uh, the size of your scrotum, the idea that you would have strong, you would have sperm and you would be fertile. Uh, if you look at classic sculptures, the most famous sculpture on earth is Michelangelo's David. Take a look at his dick. It's pretty small. It's normal size. The guy, he's not well endowed. So I, I think that um, men who obsess uh, and men think that uh, a bigger dick is going to make women happier in bed. Absolutely not. No, no, no. Women like oral sex. They don't really care about the size of your dick. And uh, there was a, one of the... so. Coming around to your question, a fascinating study, I think one of the best sex research studies ever, was done by people at um, Cal State Los Angeles who made an arrangement with uh, MSNBC, which is a huge news network and uh, on you know on television and the internet. And they did a survey and they asked, "What do you think?" They asked men, "What do you think of your dick? Is it you know too big, too small, or just right?" And then they asked women too. And 25,000 women responded. And, uh, you know, the typical sex survey is a couple hundred people. And so 25,000 is like immense. It's huge. And when you have numbers that are that big, the results uh, scientifically are very reliable. They're very good. And you know what? 87% of the women said, my guy's dick is just fine. 87 87%. And of the 13% who had a problem with their with the guy's size, several percent said it was too big. Wow. And only a very small percentage said it's too small. So the message to men is, chances are your gal thinks your dick is just fine. And so, and you know what? The size of a penis is depends entirely on the amount of blood flow through it. So the more blood you've got, the bigger it looks. And when you worry about anything, your arteries constrict. It's known as the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And so the more you worry about the size of your penis, the smaller it's going to be. So guys, if you want to be all you can be and you want to have the biggest dick you can have, relax about it. Don't worry about your penis size and then you'll get more blood flow and it'll look big and she'll be happy and so will you. Michael, you're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> This is really good. I want to ask about uh, the research, uh, one more thing, which is about people's needs, uh, the need, like around sex. And uh, I want to know how important is sex? Is it really like a need like, like eating and breathing? Is it maybe not as important? Can you live without it? What would be the, 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 the implications? Uh, what's your... Uh, knowledgeable opinion here? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think the best way to, to um, approach it is that sex is a lot like ice cream. Some people don't care for ice cream for whatever reason. They, they just don't like it. Some people don't think about ice cream much, but if it's offered, they have a little and they like it. Some people seek out ice cream. They go to ice cream shops. They have ice cream at home. And some people love ice cream and eat too much of it and get fat. Sex is very similar. 
you know, 1% of the population. Uh, well, let me preface this by saying that the more researchers look into what people want sexually, the more diversity they find. Everyone is sexually unique. That is the only, the one and only universally valid sexual generalization. You know, we're, we're overwhelmed with, oh, men are this way, women are that way, couples do this, other people do that. No, there are per certain patterns. Uh, so you can say that, yes, most married people have intercourse. Okay, yeah, that's true. But everyone is sexually unique. And that includes their wish to have or not have sex. It turns out that 1% of the population is asexual. That means they don't like sex. They don't think about it. They don't want it. They don't have it. And about 1% to 2% of the population is completely obsessed, compulsive about sex. And they can never get enough and they want more sex all the time. And they and some of those folks get into legal trouble because they're doing things like, you know, masturbating on buses and, and uh, having sex with children. That's another 1% of the population. So that leaves 98% of people are somewhere in between very problematic sex and no sex at all. And within that 98%, you know what? Everything is basically fine. If you like a lot of sex, fine. There's people who like a lot of, who like a lot of ice cream. If you don't like a lot of sex, that's fine too. Some people don't care for that much ice cream. And some people like all flavors of ice cream, just like some people like all flavors of sex, regular old sex, uh, spanking, blindfolds, uh, restraint, uh, sex toys, whatever, sex clubs, swinging. There's all kinds of flavors of sex. Some people just like one flavor of ice cream or two. And that's actually most people's sex life is um, involves kissing, hugging, uh, some oral, and some intercourse. That's what most people do most of the time. And, and that can be perfectly fine. That could be wonderful. I mean, you can have a tremendous sex life and really enjoy it if, if that's all you do. If you want to do more, that's fine too. Uh, and the more that people, you know, people used to think that uh, BDSM, bondage, discipline, and sadomasochism, you know, spanking and tying people up, what's often called whips and chains, they used to think that that was perverse. The more researchers look into it, the more normal it seems. In fact, the latest research shows that about 30% of people, of lovers, have tried some element of BDSM. And this came out uh, very forcefully when uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was published in 2011. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is the BDSM romance novel trilogy that is now the best-selling novel of all time in wow. just 10 years. Women cannot get enough of, of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's written, written for women and um, and it resonates for women very powerfully. I read it and I thought, well, this is interesting, but it doesn't really turn me on that much because I'm not the audience. Romance fiction is aimed at women just as porn is aimed at men. But ever since BDSM, uh, ever since Fifty Shades came out, there's been a lot of research showing that um, why it's become the best-selling novel ever, because lots and lots of people have fantasies that involve BDSM. And there's nothing wrong with it. There have been studies of people who are seriously into BDSM, and 
They're mentally healthy. They're totally normal. They're just like everybody else, except they have this little kink uh, because everyone's sexually unique. So what it, the message is, as long as what you're doing is not illegal and hurting somebody, it's fine. Enjoy yourself. It's play. Yeah, I think that's the general message I get from your book, even more than just fine. Sex is positive and healthy and playful, and we should all do it, have it. Yeah, yeah. do it with a smile on your face and a song in your heart. Yeah. Because, um, you know, people are so serious about sex. Oh, God, it's, it's, been so, it's treated as so ponderous and so complicated. Actually, it's just play. It's like going to the playground. And when you see children on a playground, they're just having fun. And that's what sex is. It's adult play. It's an adult playground. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. And, and what about married people specifically? Um, I understand they can eat ice cream as much as they want to. But there is some some uh, healthy ingredients in that ice cream uh, that ice cream is good for you for all sorts of reasons. Can you name a few reasons why couples that want to eat ice cream, what they might benefit if they actually eat ice cream? You know, there's a lot of mythology about married sex. And uh, one of the myths is that after people are married a while, they stop having sex. And that is true for some couples. But overwhelmingly, People who are coupled want to have some kind of sexual relationship for life. And that's part of the reason I titled it Sizzling Sex for Life. You know, the biggest complaint, the biggest sexual issue among married people, among coupled people, whether they're married or not, is desire difference. When people first get together, they can't keep their hands off each other. And uh, they have lots of sex. They have lots of fun having sex. But the hot and heavy period only lasts, you know, on average about a year. And then after that, people, they don't lose their ardor for each other. They still love each other and they want to make love, but they lose that sense of urgency that says, I've got to have sex with you right now. And when the two people lose their ardor at this exact same rate, there's no problem. They're, they're still, you know, they're, they're fine. But overwhelmingly, One person winds up wanting to have sex more than the other. The other one wants it less and conflict ensues. And uh, desire differences are the number one issue in ongoing long-term relationships. And not surprisingly, they are one of the top one or two issues of the reasons people visit sex therapists. And a lot of relationship therapists. I'm sure, Zachar, you, you have encountered this of people come in with all kinds of resentments. And one of them is he won't do it. She won't do it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So there's a whole chapter. Now, fortunately, sex therapists have developed a, a program to help people negotiate a frequency that they can both live with. And when they when couples go through this program, You know, it's a compromise. So nobody gets exactly what they want. Somebody wants sex every night and some people want it once a month. You're not, you don't compromise by saying, all right, we'll do it every other night. Typically, and like I said, everyone's unique and you should negotiate your own frequency. But if you look at the studies, people who are uh, under 40, the average, most people most of the time are making love about once a week about three or four times a month. Over about 45, most people are making love two to three times a month. And that 
can be negotiated, uh, your frequency. And then the critical element here is to pull out your calendars and schedule it. Schedule your sex. Schedule sex dates. This is almost universal among sex counselors and therapists is what they always tell couples because people have this notion that it should be spontaneous when you're in the mood. Well, when people first fall in love, it is. They're in the mood all the time and they can be spontaneous and jump into bed. But once you've been married 10 years, nothing about sex is spontaneous. Nothing. I mean, once you have kids, nothing is spontaneous in your life, period. So how can you expect sex to keep being spontaneous? No, it isn't. So what really works is when people negotiate a frequency. Okay, we're going to do it three times a month. We're going to do it four times a month. And then you pull out your calendar and you put it on there and you arrange a sex date. And some people, you know, take turns enhancing, uh, you know, uh, next time I will present a few uh, little things, you know, and and after that you do. But calendarize, putting it on the calendar makes a tremendous difference because then um, what it does is when people have desire difference, the person who wants more sex is always putting their hands all over the other person, hoping they're going to get lucky. And the person who wants less sex is always shying away, like, don't touch me, you know, and, and they never touch the other person because they don't want to give the wrong impression. But the thing is, non-sexual touch, hugging, kissing, cuddling when you're watching TV, these are very pleasurable things for people and you want them in a relationship. And so when you calendar your sex and you know when you're going to have sex, then both people feel free to kiss and hug and cuddle by the TV without any fear that it's going to imply anything beyond that. And so um, when couples who have had horrible desire differences, and I, I know I know couples who um, had horrible desire differences for like, you know, 10, 15 years, and they were at each other's throats and might have been thinking about splitting up. When they go through the simple program, decide how often they want to do it, and then calendar it, almost immediately, things get really much better very quickly. And they're kissing and hugging and cuddling by the TV, and they they like each other more. And, and so that's, I think, one of the uh, key elements for married people, that is the notion of uh, recognizing that desire differences are inevitable. It's not just that your husband or wife is a jerk and perverse and wants to torture you. It's inevitable. And everybody has to deal with this problem. And fortunately, there's a very easy, constructive way to do it. And, and where can people learn more about uh, this type of solutions? Uh, there's a whole chapter in my in sex, Sizzling Sex for Life called How Sex Therapists Recommend Overcoming Desire Differences. And it's all laid out right in there. And um, it's really one of my favorite chapters of the book because uh, so many married people have so much misery about this. Um, and the solution is often pretty easy. And if the book can't help you, like I said, then go to a therapist and he or she will help you negotiate a, a frequency and, and get over this. As a couples therapist, I must say, you really get the problem. It's not just the desired difference. It's m more about the not touching anymore because we're afraid uh, to, to give yeah. the wrong message. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, desired differences get bound up with a lot of other issues, power and control issues in relationships. And I'm not going to say that... Uh, 
that my book is going to cure everyone of everything, um, which is why I encourage people to get a foundation of research, evidence-based knowledge that's true. Mm-hmm. And then if you still have problems, see a therapist by all means, because mm-hmm. in a couple of months for most sex problems, it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, this has been fascinating. We could talk on and on, but uh, um, where can people find your book? Uh, well, you can get it at sizzlingsexforlife.com. And uh, you can buy an, a signed copy, signed by me, or you can buy a PDF. Uh, it's also on uh, Amazon.com, but no signed copies there. Um, and, uh, and if anyone has a question that's burning them up, they can go to greatsexguidance.com and I will do my best to answer your question. And we will put the links, guys, uh, for greatsexguidance.com and sizzlingsexforlife.com in the show notes of generousmerge.com. So if you're accidentally like listening now and you're already on the site, just scroll down a bit. Here's the link. And guys, listen, this has been clearly uh, fascin- like, uh, just a, an amazing opportunity to be here, to listen to you, to ask your question, Michael. And uh, you have, guys, the opportunity to ask Michael more questions after years and years of studying and journaling and, and researching uh, the, the, the like hundreds and hundreds of studies around uh, sexuality and sex therapy and sex research. And I, I, I just uh, uh, am so thankful for you to share it here with us in the Generous Marriage Podcast. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. I really enjoyed the, our chat. Yeah, me too, Michael. This is amazing. And you are so knowledgeable and you, you have this great way of, of uh, giving this information that is easy to, to understand and, and, uh, and actually use in life. So I'm going to give it to uh, many of my clients. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Truly, truly inspiring. And thank you guys for listening to The Generous Marriage podcast. This is uh, uh, the last episode of uh, season three. Uh, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, please leave a review on, uh, on about Generous Marriage podcast in your favorite podcast player. And uh, thank you, Shachar, for an amazing, knowledgeable, uh, educational uh, season. Thank you, Ziv, as well. This has been fun. And thank you, Michael, again. And thank you for everyone that are listening. And see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.